Welcome to Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall, pleasure to be in your company as always, but if it is the first time that you've ever come to listen to us, then make sure you hit subscribe following this episode on iTunes, therefore you never miss out on any of our future content, and you can also go back and have a listen to some of our archive. There's some great names on there, and today is no different. Today is as big as it gets in the chefing world. Head chef by the age of 27. Three Michelin stars by the age of 33. The man is unbelievable when it comes to food. He's also pretty good at growing businesses as well. He's got restaurants in the UK, restaurants all over the world, restaurants in the States. He's also got a phenomenal media career as well, popping up on TV shows left, right and centre, both here and abroad. It is the one and only Mr Gordon Ramsay. And with me saying that, you know full well that I've got to give you a bit of a warning that there might be a bit of choice language. But what do you expect? It's Gordon. That's why you've tuned in, isn't it? For a little bit of fruity stuff. Let's get stuck into the conversation. Well, first of all, Gordon, thank you very much for obviously joining me and Frank uh, on this show. We had your mate on a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Uh, Mr. Siri X. It was, uh, has given us a lot of information on you, so we're going to pass that on throughout the course of this program. He basically yeah. said that uh, your program that you are making, obviously, uh, that has just finished actually here in the UK with uh, himself and Gino, was uh, you lads were getting paid for basically going on a stag do for a few weeks. You know what I mean? You were having a right old time. The problem with Fred is he's French. <laughs> and he's, he's living in Peckham. So I love France. It's just the French I can't stand. <laughs> it, did, it did seem like an awful lot of fun that television show you seem to be just constantly laughing all the way through it yeah it's hard because they've got this uh impression of america that's sort of bold brash and ugly uh, and frank uh, knows better than anyone you know it's sort of land of uh hope and glory and you know the most uh, amazing excitement so Taking them to Vegas for the first time, uh, honestly, it felt like we were sort of reshooting Hangover 7. Because um, those guys were like two 18-year-olds in Tenerife. I just realised what the balls are for. Yeah. How did you feel when uh, they were both naked around your mum? Yeah, I mean, mum's never quite said anything like that uh, for a long time. God bless her. 75 years of age. An Italian stallion and a French, uh, you know, waiter jumping all over her. Um, yeah, I mean, I was more concerned to think what the neighbours uh, were thinking, what's going on in Ramsey's household. Um, where we live, um, in Bel Air Crest, next door to us is Stevie Wonder. And it's an amazing family. And so, wow. you know, when all this commotion was going on, I'm sure, you know, they were sat there thinking, what in the hell? First of all, we can smell the burgers. He's vegan. Then they heard all the screaming and shouting. And sadly, he's blind. So um, it was almost like, Fred, Gino, you know, this is my mum. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, dancer from Vegas. It's my mum. For God's sake, get dressed. And they were like, putting it onto her. So I don't think my mum has recovered from that, to be honest. But um, something to talk about next time she goes down to the bingo, that's for sure. Absolutely. You, you, can, get, you can get your own back when it's Fred's stag do. I'm sure that you can, uh, you can yeah. stitch him up royally then. I'm, I'm starting to plan that now. But, you know, when you're in that camper van and you're traveling across the US and, you know, um, it's... It, it, it's nice to sort of get on the road and those roads are so amazing because it's just amazing the most amazing chats pull over uh, cook a bit of uh, lunch jump back in um, and drive and these these roads go on for hundreds and hundreds of miles um and of course do you think i'd 
ever let them behind the wheel, a French driver and an Italian driver. One can't <laughs> touch the pedals with his tiny legs, and the other one doesn't know what side of the road he's driving on. You say that, but you pranked the, you pranked the van. You pranked it. They were supposed to be my watch, Adam. They were supposed to be my guide, the left-hand side, the right-hand side. So I do get a bit confused. We've just finished shooting a, a series for Nat Geo. We were in Tasmania, Guyana, Indonesia, Kerala, and South Africa in a period of like three and a half weeks. It was incredible. And you get back and you land at Heathrow, you jump in the car, you think, shit, am I on the left-hand side, the right-hand side? Where am I? Traffic light, go left, I go right. As you know, in the US, you can turn on a red light. So it's all confusing, but uh, enjoyable series. We're thinking potentially of Australia for season three, which will be wow. fun. And, uh, you know, we've got to plan Fred's stag do. Is that being filmed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too sure, uh, Frank, if that will ever be allowed to be edited or filmed because... Sounds good to <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to the great British public. I was going to say, Frank, have you ever thought of doing like a, an American road trip? I've never got round to it. I don't know. My business is so full on all the time. You know, you're, you're doing so many things. All the, all the things you'd like to do, you yeah. can't. And now we've got all this time on our hands. You can't go out to do them. I'm definitely going to do, you know, do some of these things on my sort of bucket list and get them sorted out in the next yeah. year or so. I could be the cook on the trip, Frank. Okay. We'll have some fun. Yeah, we'll definitely have some fun, Gordon. <laughs> Don't worry about. It. When you started out, you know, up in Scotland, when did you decide that you wanted to be a chef? I mean, how did that come about, and who inspired you? That's a good question. Um, so, God, we sort of grew up all over the place. Dad's job took him, you know, all over the place in a way that when he didn't get his own way, he sort of quit and moved on. So um, it's funny, we were having this conversation last night with the kids, and um, that's Oscar in the background, by the way, speaking <laughs> for his dinner. <laughs> so it's funny because I was born in Scotland and then sort of raised in, in England, but we lived, oh my God, from, you know, from Daventry to Birmingham to Stratford-on-Avon to Newcastle, you name it, we've lived there. So when I um, started playing football in Oxford, we were there for the youth team and then we played uh, under 16, under 18 level and I got asked to go and try out for Rangers uh, youth team. YTS had just come in and um, it was a big, exciting sort of, you know, potential contract. I went up there, lived uh, with my mum and dad, and then trained throughout the summer. And at the end of the summer, uh, prior to season, the pre-season, I got asked to join the reserves in the first team in a, in a couple of uh, friendly sort of testimonial games, which they did for sort of local players. I remember getting the call up to go up against East Kilbride and uh, Coisty had just broken through to sort of the national Scottish team. And there was about three players from the first team and everybody else was from the reserves and under 18s. Anyway, I got my number three shirts, uh, left back. Um, I thought I had a great game. Um, got invited back literally three months later. Two weeks before that, um, I was playing uh, uh, in a game and I, I, I smashed my cartilage, 50-50 ball. Uh, absolutely mortified. So, you know, when you're naturally left-footed and you've had that kind of impact, there was nowhere near that level of attention to detail in sort of surgery the way it is now. And if anything, the doctor said, look, this will naturally recover, but forget playing football for a year. In those days, whether you're at Celtic or Rangers or Aberdeen, there were six or seven other 18-year-olds, strong, strapping guys that were ready to take your place. So you weren't sort of forgotten about. You were just cast aside um, because they couldn't, you know, keep you in that position because of, the vulnerability 
I couldn't hardly kick hard with my right foot. It was getting better, but I was naturally left-footed and that was my strength. So I got sort of, you know, uh, pushed aside. I tried to come back again uh, six months later, and this time I, I, I tore ligaments again in my left knee. So once you got uh, an issue like that at that age, and listen, I was living a, in a council house with my sister, and then mum and dad had a tenement block, a, a, a tiny two-bedroom flat in Glasgow. So there's no way on earth we had Bupa or private mm. health insurance or any of that kind of setup. So yeah. you sort of dusted yourself down. <clears throat> I was on my ass. Um, I was, you know, uh, frustrated. I'd sort of tampered with cooking in a way that I was getting part-time jobs and then um, decided to get to London. That was the place to be. So I said, I'll give myself two or three years in London um, in order to get a great grounding. And then I was desperate to get out because I wanted to leave the country because as I was seeing my mates getting regular first team call-ups and getting into that squad and breaking into the, the national Scottish side. So it was becoming more painful. When I got to London, I got a job at the Mayfair Hotel in uh, Barclay Square. And that was sort of incredible just to get in there because it was sort of full on and you put your head down. And I sort of quite liked that kind of bustling, you know, busyness. And the hurt from the football was still there, but it wasn't as apparent. So I sat on the grill one night after a double shift and the executive chef said, Ramsey, you youngest, um, you've got to do the night shift. Uh, night chef's just phone in sick. So this is 10 to 12. So I'd been up since six in work for seven and just spent 17 hours and then all of a sudden do a night shift. Got halfway through the night and now Kitchen Porters, this amazing uh, group of guys um, from Acton, there's an Indian family that uh, you know, cleaned the place and they're amazing cooks. They sat me down in the staff canteen and I were eating this salmon fish head curry, just the salmon heads. And there was, it was the, to do with the sort of cheeks and the gills and the chewing away and this curry. And I was thinking, God, this is amazing. I got a, a catering magazine that was sat in the staff canteen and on the cover was Marco Pierre White that just opened up his restaurant at Harvey's. So I finished that morning, yeah. sort of 6.37, and went straight to Victoria train station and phoned him, you know, uh, told him exactly, you know, what I've gone through, where I am. I'm not very happy. I'm not learning as much as I want to. He said, um, when can you come over? I said, I can come over now. So I left the station from the phone box, wow. jumped over ground on a Victoria uh, overground, got to Wandsworth, uh, got off at the wrong stop, walked to the Harvey's, knocked on the back door and just spent the next two hours talking to this guy. That was just a massive force of nature. I was 20. He was just turning 26 or 25, I remember. Oh, um, yeah. He said, when can you start? I said, look, I have to give a three months notice. He said, bollocks to that. If you want the job, you start on Monday. Um, <laughs> so literally, I started on Monday. And that was it because, you know, two and a half years under that tenor and that kind of discipline, it was incredible. I mean, really incredible, but pretty unique because I knew I was learning something when you're under that kind of tutelage. You kept your head down. You took the, uh, you took the crap because what you're learning was way more important when you made mistakes. You never made them twice. And then he was gifted. I mean, naturally gifted. It's almost like being with a perfect trainer that everything he had, he was given to you. And the two and a half years I spent there was equivalent to a five-year stint in any, any other kitchen. So as he was trying to get bigger and employing more staff, they were falling to the wayside. You just got stronger because the sort of weaker fell to the wayside and the stronger got stronger. And it was a bit like a sort of dog-eat-dog -dog scenario. And then, you know, I sat down and told him, look, I want to go to France. I want to become French. I want to know the birthplace inside out. And he said, look, if you stay with me a little bit longer, I'll send you to the Gavroche with the Rue brothers in London. And then once you've mastered a French kitchen in London, 
they'll open the door in France because he didn't really have any contacts in France. So after that, I, um, I went back, uh, would you believe, to uh, playing football stupidly. And I'll tell you why, because Gavroche was open Monday to Friday. And I thought like an idiot, 22 years of age, I can cook and play football that weekend. So I started trying to get back into the, um, God, it was like then it was the Ryman's League. And I was going out to places like Wilsdon and Banbury United thinking I'm going to get another call up like an idiot. But I still couldn't let go. And then literally when the first sort of two or three tryouts, you know, even at 22, I'd lost everything. I'd not, I could still play, but nowhere near that speed and finesse that was required. But stupidly, I still had that. And then I had to decide, right, stick to the Gavroche with the French, you know, Rue brothers, learn as much as you can and get the hell out of the country. That way you can finally cut off. And I did just that. At 23, I got my first job in Paris. And out of all those, you know, working with Marco and the Gavroche and going to Paris, I mean, they obviously had all their different strengths and weaknesses. Who did you feel was, the, you know, the biggest influence out of all those on you? Oh, definitely Marco. Frank, oh, without a doubt. I mean, just, you know, an absolute genius. Uh, listen, I did a documentary uh, years ago called Boiling Point. If you wanted to see a Hollywood blockbuster, then you should have filmed Marco Pierre White. <laughs> it was fucking insane. <laughs> it was insane. And Frank, you, you, you and I have had, you know, drinks late into the night and the Tyson, uh, Mike Tyson moments, you know, Grosvenor House Hotel. And, and yeah. just, you think these one-offs. And so I was learning so much because it was, he was on the edge because that's what it's like at that level of brilliance. You're on the edge. And so not only did he teach me how to, you know, work bloody smartly, but he just had a level of finesse that no other chef could touch. And he was traveling so fast and just keeping up with him was just an absolute joy. And so as always with that kind of mentorship, you know, it was jump off or burn out. And I had to jump off to get into something else. Otherwise I'd stick with him and then 10 years down the line, how do I create my own following if I don't pick up from other talented chefs? But he opened the most important door. That was to the Rue brothers. And they then opened the most important yeah. door um, in France. But it's like I've got young chefs today. And once they've been with you for two years, three years, right, you've got to go now. And they look at me and say, no, I love it here. No, you've got to go on and become individual. Don't follow, you know, don't be a sheep. You know, be that leader. And I always say to them, Big fish swim alone, okay? You never see a school of great yeah. whites. You see this one fucking great white, you know, swimming around <laughs> for days on end. Big fish swim alone. So get used to being alone. And it's funny, I was so insecure when I got to Paris. No Marco, no Rue Brothers, not a pot to piss in. And then I just had to put my head down and, and become French because, you know, they beat the crap out of me about how shit the English food was, you know, what the fuck do you think you're doing here? French, uh, French cuisine is the best and, you know, we're the best lovers, the best drivers, the best chefs and all that bullshit. So <laughs> it forms a character and you get thick skin. But my French was so good. Within eight months, my young chefs would ask me which part of France I was from. I was that determined to nail the French language wow. in order to absolutely master it because then I got more respect. Yeah. And I suppose the kitchen regime, and I've been at the chef's table in, uh, in a couple of restaurants, the one you opened in New York, I remember, and also the beautiful restaurant, restaurant in Hospital Road. The discipline and the regime that you have there, it's like military precision, isn't it? Is that something that you learned from the beginning, or are other restaurants different than that? Or is that yeah. just how you are? No, that's a, that's a really good question. So when I had that failure in football through no fault of mine, getting into cooking was... Uh, 
important to get a second bite of the cherry. But what I didn't want to do, Frank, was hit the sort of middle division and, and work my ass off and get to 45, 50 and think that, you know, I'm still chained to the stove. And so I was desperate to climb the ladder. But what I did promise myself was that when I get to the top, I want to sit on top and then I want to encourage others to get there alongside me and delegate. So that level of boisterousness and that level of perfection is no different to sport. Yeah. In 2001, we won our third mission star, Royal Oslo Road. You've been there from the beginning, Frank, you know, even back in the Aubergine yeah. days. So, yeah. you know, there's no higher than three stars. And, and this year, we just celebrated 22 years at Reston Gordon Ramsay, and we're in our 19th year at three star. So, you know, that's like winning the Champions League every year. And if I was flipping burgers and dressing Caesar salads, trust me, I'd have a fucking baseball cap on and high-fiving everybody when they get the fries. <laughs> but at that level, you know, when the shit hits the fan, you're dealing with some real serious standards there. And I remember Marco saying yeah. to me, if I'm going to teach you everything I've got, don't ever fuck with my standards. And I just looked at him and said, no, Marco, you're absolutely right. I will not mess with your standards. So I don't know any other way of running a kitchen. You know, mm. people say, why is it so manic? Why is it so boisterous? They look at something like Kitchen Nightmares, Frank. And then they think that's how my kitchens run. You know, my <laughs> kitchens run to utter perfection because they're fine-tuned Ferraris. If I was in Japan and I was cooking uh, Japanese, uh, trust me, you know how, how sacred and quiet those chefs are, but they're all raw yeah. ingredients and sushi sashimi doesn't require a lot of heat. So there's a different temperament for a Japanese culture. I've just been taught by the very best. And I'm not blaming the people I work for. Is I don't think I know any different. That's the difference. But... I still get incredibly upset if there's anything compromised or chefs want to send food thinking the customers won't spot that because they do. They're too good today. The customers know so much more, whether it's the internet, whether it's, yeah. work, whether it's the cooking at home. Yeah, they deserve to know. And there's one thing I hate is absolute shitty shortcuts that people think I'll get the job done quicker by taking this shortcut. No, you're compromising the standard. Do you feel that any chefs today are overrated? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, if I didn't have any TV, Frank, I wasn't producing those shows. Behind all that, I'm a real chef. And so that's the difference. You look at Middleton, you know, behind that facade, there's a guy that was uh, SBS, Special Forces, a Royal Marine, and prior to that was the Paris. So I'm 53 years of age. You know, I, I got my third mission star you know, at 33. And so I'm a real chef, not a TV chef. And there are TV chefs out there that wouldn't last an hour in a professional kitchen because you've got the power of the edit, you've got the power of the producer, and to be totally frank, you're not gonna taste any food we cook on TV because you can't fucking smell it. So, you know, you can get away with a lot of shit on there. And I used to take the piss out of all the, the ready steady guys and have a bit of banter with them and say to myself, I'm not a TV chef because it may have come across slightly hypocritical, but I'm a real chef. So, yeah, I suppose in terms of overrated chefs today yeah Gina De Campo there's a chef overrated <laughs> you knew that that was coming <laughs> so for you then I mean obviously as you say Gordon Ramsay in Chelsea is, I mean that's three stars that, that length of time is amazing balancing your TV career and a restaurateur chef that's not affected the standards so do you find it difficult at all that you have to in balance keeping your eye on the ball is it difficult for you Yes, a very good question. It's the most difficult thing I do, Frank, because um, I need to trust. In 22 years, I've had literally two head chefs there. And so you never hand that baton over until you're absolutely fully secure in what they're doing. And all I want to know is what are your weakness is? What aren't you good at so I can improve? 
And then yeah. you think of the setup there. We've got 10 tables, Frank. It's 38 seats. It functions five days a week. It's closed Sunday, Monday. So it's one team, one dream. So, you know, I'm not running, you know, 150 seats, seven days a week, 365 days a year there. So that trinket box and that level of perfection, you know, it's like a Premier League club. It can only it needs time to rest, it needs time to shut down, it needs time to break and have holidays. And so I set that up without having a noose around my neck early on in life. And then I look at the, the head chefs, you know, from God, Claire Smith to Matt Avey. And then I look at the kind of chefs that have been through there, Marcus Waring, and you think of the talent that's been through that. You know, they're all individual talents now, doing exceptionally well. And I think what I've become, and I have done for a long time, I've become very unselfish, Frank, because I've achieved so much from a personal level, you know, in terms of what I set out to do. And it does hurt when you get criticized by individuals that know less about food than you do, because then your profile is so big, so you're an easy target to have a, a laugh at or to be picked on. And they don't really get down to the food because it's about the character and the swearing and all that bullshit. So you tolerate a lot, but we put a lot back. And that level of perfection got set up in 1998 to withstand that level of not being changed at the stove Chefs today have some of the most appalling eating habits and the downside is bloody strokes and heart attacks. And I never wanted to become a victim of that kind of old yeah. fashioned setup. I, need, I, I wanted the freedom and I said to the young girls and guys today, stay fit, stay on your toes, make sure you're in the gym. And more importantly, you need to live. This is a marathon, it's not a hundred meter sprint. So um, that restaurant was tailor-made so I could do that media development, so I could partake in those shows and then attempting to sort of conquer America and set up business over there with some freedom. When you decided you'd go to America, it's very difficult, as we all know, for people to go across the pond and crack it. What did you feel it took to be successful there? Uh, that's a good question. So, you know, Vegas, we've got 14 restaurants in, in um, America with 35 in the pipeline. Um, I, I think raising the bar, especially in somewhere like the Steakhouse, uh, was super important. And then I think back to the sort of the TV uh, help. We set up Hell's Kitchen uh, back in 2005 and we just finished filming uh, recently, season 20. There's not many shows that go on for 10 seasons, let alone 20. And we've just done an amazing uh, season for young guns, uh, the future talent. And that's really important for me, continue to nurse that talent. Where's that hunger coming from? How do they get that? platform that pedestal to, to get to the next level so part of that breaking America was about being brutally honest and whereby you know some people thought as a little bit too frank and a little bit in your face um, you just cut straight to the shit man get straight to the crux and also I was looking for the solution don't give me the problem what's the solution we got here so I really worked hard at that and then bring a little bit of that cool Britannia because America loves Britain and Britain loves America so having that kind of cool Britannia I remember setting up the burger store in um, Planet Hollywood in Vegas. And, you know, the team yeah. was saying, well, how do you have burgers? You're a brick. How are you going to crack making a, an amazing burger here in Vegas? I finished it with Devonshire butter. I got this amazing apple chip wood. <laughs> and then I finished it with fucking Devonshire butter. So every time I go down to Taunton now, to Devon, I swear to God, I, I, I pull my car over, I go into that field, and I, I kiss the ass of a cow to say thank you. <laughs> in the world, because the brushing of that butter over those burgers, there's no flavor like it anywhere in Vegas, and those burgers are freaking delicious. And tell me, when you're all over the States, so you're doing your road trip and all the things you're doing, you meet some people from all sorts of life and, and some very eccentric people. 
Is there anything shocking that's, uh, or anything stood out to you that's really shocking in the States that's actually shocked you when you're out there? Anybody you come across? Um, yeah, it's hard because we got that sort of, we co-produced MasterChef out there. I was at one of the auditions a few years back and a lady was telling me about her uh, mac and cheese and it was her grandma's recipe, but she's adapted this mac and cheese. And I'm tasting this mac and cheese and thinking, Christ, you know, great caramelization on top, a lot of cheese on there, wading through it. I'm thinking, bloody hell, it's so sweet. And obviously, you know, all the contestants are there and I said, love, you know, mac and cheese, you know, Yes, Chef Ramsey. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, Chef Ramsey. I said, no, no, let me finish my sentence first. Can I just ask the fucking question? Why is it so sweet? She's, oh, I finished it with my breast milk. Whoa. <laughs> so, just, <laughs> I'm just, uh, and, and then I was upstate New York and as a, a restaurant uh, on Kitchen Nightmares and um, I, uh, I walked into the door and you go, for one door, get into this little cubicle and then go through another door. It's a draft exclusion thing. Anyway, it's a bit of an awkward entrance. I walked in there and I turned around and I said, shit, what time was this table booked? I looked in the corner and it was this fucking mouse. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, so I stood on his tail like that and like, <laughs> standing on the tail, picked it up, put it in my pocket. I go in to the restaurant, just as the staff were having the briefing for a fully booked service that we were filming. I said, look, sorry, we've got one expected, unexpected guest here. Yeah. Who invited fucking Stuart Little's cousin? And uh, said, oh my God, oh, it's a mouse. Oh my God, it's a mouse. They blamed me. They actually said that I rolled the tape. You brought that in your pocket. You brought, I mean, I mean, really? Are you serious? Wow. I, I, honestly. And so it's just bizarre how, first of all, they asked me in these restaurants. Secondly, the due diligence and the amount of team, the size of the team that I have working with me on these programs. I want it to work. When it's successful, you don't get praise. When it fails, you get blamed. I remember- It's your fault, yeah. Yeah, I remember being in New Orleans and uh, I was waiting, I told the band, I was undercover, and I told the band, you know, stay away from the uh, gumbo. He said, what can I have? He said, well, I, fuck, let's just get some bread. So he got some bread, it was stale. So he said to the waitress, can we toast it? So uh, they came back with the uh, toast and he's spreading this like fucking cream cheese. And uh, he said, smell that. I said, fucking hell, what is that? So I was trying to work out what it was. 10 minutes later, I'm in the kitchen, you know, looking, the smell, what the fuck is that smell? I turned the toast upside down and there's a fucking mouse in there. It's been in there. So I said to the waitress, oh. I said, there's a smell of the fucking singed hair all over the mouth and it's bread. So I said to him, I said, what, what are you doing? She said, we don't use that side of the grill. As if they knew it was in there. And they don't use that side of the grill. Jesus. The fucking thing still singeing the fucking smell all over the toast. Jeez. Really? Jeez. You wouldn't want ratatouille in that restaurant. <laughs> no, so, uh, yeah, there's a few. But, yeah, it's, uh, oh, my God, it's hard. It's bloody hard. Um, can I just quickly say thank you for the best fight of the year, by the way, Mr. Warren. Didn't he fight well? Yeah. Well, I've just... done a job. Yeah, but just put that back to Manchester a few years ago when you're flipping your lid and doing your nut ringside uh, and he was kissing the component, you know, his opponent. But just psychologically to go through that mental pressure and to not just lose that weight, get that fit, change trainer, you know, stick with your guidance and then to come back and to, to master that ring. I knew from the outset, you know, when we're in the dressing room, and as always, you were the calming influence, and he was super chilled, super calm. 
within the first two minutes, that first round, he was in control mm-hmm. and didn't get over uh, excited, yeah. didn't, didn't over egg the souffle, didn't get too far ahead himself, but absolutely had him under the palm of his hand and just literally massaged each round. And I don't know if you know, yeah. but I actually called it when they said, give us a prediction. I said, look, you know, if he uses that jab, uh, stay strong, don't get carried away. This thing's going to end in seven round. Who knows, he may even throw the towel in. So what a fight. And thank you because I've seen what you've done for not just boxers, but for decades. And I don't know what it is. And I, I say it to my chefs every time. And you're a little bit older with a lot more experience. But being a promoter, uh, it's tough and bloody hard because you don't get to see 90% of the crap that you deal with behind the scenes. And then it's like every chef that becomes an amazing chef, all of a sudden they think they're going to, they're a great businessman and it's two different attributes. Yeah. And it's the same with a fighter and a promoter and both of them go hand in glove. I'm still a chef at heart, but I run a business, but I have the best business advice from a CEO to a CFO to COO. And I need all those layers, you know, to keep this sort of, yeah moving as the exact same as promoting but i left that arena that night and uh i was just so happy for you happy for tyson the family and just to just to overcome those hurdles in that short period of time and to absolutely own that fight hands down uh was a, was it was a dream and i think it's gonna be very hard to match that for decades to come that moment uh, you must have felt the same frank no oh you know it's one of the best performances I've seen from a British fighter abroad, probably the best, because what you've got to look at who he was in with. I mean, normally what happens, you get the champion who's maybe past his sell-by date and passing the baton on to the, to the younger, up-and-coming young buck. But these guys, they were both at their prime, and Tyson went in as the underdog. Most of the press had Wilder to stop him, and also, as far as Tyson was concerned, is that they say that he couldn't punch, you know, this guy, would, that Wilder would knock him out. And you think where he came from, and this is where they all missed it, was the fact that he actually could train this time for a fight rather than training to lose the weight. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that was the difference. And when he got in there, as you, as you quite rightly said, Gordon, he absolutely owned him. It was like the last round of the fight when he came back the, fight, the previous fight. Mm-hmm. The first round was the 13th round. He just right. took, took over and done an absolute job and beat him in every department and shows you that Harry can punch. I mean, he he done a job on him. He out-punched him, he out-boxed him, he out-gained him. In every department, showed more heart, more grit. And uh, it was a phenomenal moment. And as you quite rightly say, from where he came back from, it was it was a fantastic moment. And I was really glad you was there because you've been coming for, well, God knows, I mean, back, going back to the early Ricky Hatton, very early Ricky Hatton days and, and Naz days on our travels. We had some good times. Absolutely. I, I can't imagine Tyson Fury coming on a fucking magic carpet like Naz did once at Wembley. Jesus Christ, I have a big fucking carpet. Uh, and then down to the, uh, this pasty Mancurian milk bottle that was on the undercard against uh, when Ricky made his debut uh, in New York when uh, Prince yeah. was fighting Kevin Kelly. And uh, Ricky had a oh, what a night. Oh, what a night again. But um, yeah, I mean, there's another prime example when you look at the discipline that you showed Naz and that prolific profile, and then Naz wanted to be a boxer and a promoter. And that, that shit doesn't wash, do you know what I mean? And so that camaraderie and that kind of banter is super important, but I know it's business. But I always say to my guys, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. But if you want to make every decision, then use your fucking money. 
don't make every decision with my money. You can't do that. That's not business. Okay. This is business. Bottom line, yeah. And it's so important. And I think it runs not just parallels in sport, but just in general. But it's amazing when you see that kind of pressure. And I thought of what was going on in that dressing room and how calm it was um, prior. But the weight on Tyson's shoulders coming out uh, was extraordinary. Yeah. But my God, did he own that from round one? And I, I was looking at you. First of all, someone had jumped in your seat, so you're going fucking mad. Who, who sat in my seat? I don't even remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was. I think it was uh, Errol Spence, the only American champion. <laughs> he kept telling me, "Do you know who I am?" <laughs> I said, "I don't give a shit who you are." That's my thing. <laughs> yeah, no, but it was all right. Yeah, and what they did, they put us in the seats with all the. Uh, because all that, look, we're all wilder supporters. So somehow the seats all got messed about. So I was in the middle of them screaming on my man. And, like, and, and obviously, they were quite vocal to start with. And they gradually just quietened down. And we just took up, didn't we? So it was good. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> just saying, you touched on it earlier, Gordon, about after this, hopefully, this virus, they conquer it and it goes away. And, and the gradual opening up the restaurants and, the, and reducing the seats and so forth. Does it go any further than that? I mean, do you have to look at things about how many waiters you have to have in the restaurant to serve, how that will work, you know, going from table to table? Yeah, that's a very good point. So we have to be um, incredibly careful um, how we reset these restaurants up. So I'm sort of hosting uh, calls now, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with all the teams. And we have to imagine these as new openings. So forget salt and pepper, you know, it's hand sanitizer. Forget the long-winded descriptions forget table sides, um, and temperature checks, staff checks, you know, regular testings. And so all these things have to come into play. I look at the setup with Emirates now, and they've got that fast track system going into play next month, where they'll be testing customers prior to boarding with a 20 minute. So we have to increase the security of our customers and we have to make sure that they feel yeah. uh, safe and incredibly well looked after. So all those measures now are sort of being worked out and it's a, a logistical minefield because we're still uncertain with the vaccine, uh, the timing, but you know, there needs to be a much stronger, healthier rapport, you know, not just with the waiters, but also with the chefs in terms of any light fevers. Uh, and those temperature checks are, are, are so important. So it's interesting because we're sort of, we're listening to what the government are saying. We're listening to what they want to implement and we're trying to get uh, as much information as possible to move and open ahead of the curve um, with the right kind of structures in place. Obviously in Vegas, it relies purely on entertainment and obviously the hotels and the restaurants and so forth to bring the punters back in. Do you think that's going to be a, a gradual process or do you think that they're going to have to be very creative to get people not only to get them there to get them on planes again to travel to Vegas. Do you think that's going to be a problem? Yeah, so the schedule, you know, subject to the governor's uh, approval, second week in May, around the 15th of May. You know, Vegas is a, is a multi-billion dollar uh, franchise and it could be severely detrimental for uh, a much longer closure. So yeah. again, you know, I'm not saying we're going to fast track those testings, but as soon as this vaccine is available, you will see a rapid return to normality for obvious mm -hmm. reasons because you know, everyone's bouncing off the ceilings and, and they want to get back to that normal feeling. So I reckon it will be a slow uh, opening uh, end of May, June, July. And then I think September is when you'll see it kick in. I know the hotels are going to be running sort of 35, 40% occupancy rate between Monday to Friday. And there may be a 50, 60% occupancy rate at weekends. 
but you know the livelihoods frank and the sort of conglomerates there in terms of how powerful these businesses are to the economy you know those cogs have to get turning like we said and if the testing's in place and fingers crossed the vaccine is being tested as we speak and it was down to that incredible unit at oxford university uh, working closely yeah. in terms of what they've got up um it's incredible stuff so yeah it's just we're we're, we're at the curve but we can't stay we can't get too excited we need to follow what's yeah. in italy and that's a great barometer for us because they're two weeks in front of us so we can sort of learn sadly from their mistakes and and, and not not reopen too quickly um, and get a second spike can i can i ask both of yeah. you as business owners is that the biggest stress i'll go to you first gordon on that is that the biggest stress obviously keeping people in jobs and keeping your business ticking over yeah, I mean, so the government have been amazing and HMRC have been incredible and the furlough setup uh, was extraordinary. But we were left sort of high and dry, you know, week before closing, uh, middle of March, you know, we were told it's not a uh, force majeure. The government were advising guests to stay out of pubs and restaurants and with no official lockdown. So here we are sat, you know, with these fridges and restaurants, you know, full, ready to go, fully loaded. So the official close down, when does that start? You know, when, when do we have to officially? So we're in limbo for that first week, which was pretty horrible for everybody because the staff were nervous, the fridges were full and customers were still turning up reservations. So it wasn't made official as early as we'd liked. Certain restaurants were closing down without the government. And then we were sort of sat there thinking, God, what is happening? Once the official lockdown and closure uh, was in place, then furlough was announced. And so, you know, the majority of our staff were furloughed. That side of things, the government have been instrumental. I think the only issue we've got is with the landlords because it's not controlled by you know one conglomerate. It's individual landlords that uh, a lot of these landlords are foreigners and a lot of them offshore companies, and so they can't lose either way. But if we get the support from the government to sort of carry this rent-free period from three months to six months to nine months, um, then I think everything's going to sort of open up, you know, calmly and fingers crossed. By spring 2021, we should be back up on our feet. I'm hoping the first big wave of proper business should be Christmas. And everyone's going to be slightly nervous from September onwards. But um, like I said, with the vaccine, fingers crossed, you know, coming through thick and fast. And the testing that we can do individually with our own staff. And then that monitoring system, um, I think we should, be, we should be ready to get going and, and get some form of business going in the summer. Frank, how does that affect boxing? What does boxing look like when it all comes back? Well, I think the main problem we have is keeping people's morale going because we work towards dates. A trains towards a specific date to get to peak fitness. And at the moment, we have no dates. But what I understand, and I believe is going to happen, is that we up and running shows probably mid-June to the end of June that we will be putting uh, shows on to start with behind closed doors. Again, we've got to work on that work very hard on the safety aspect of it, making sure that people are tested regularly, uh, making sure, because remember this is a contact sport, a full contact sport, making sure that not just the boxers, but the trainers, the seconds, uh, the referees, we've got to make sure it's a safe environment for them. And that is paramount. We're all ready to go. We've got everything in place to do this. As soon as we get the green light, when it's safe enough, when the government say that we can commence doing things behind closed doors, we are in a good position to move. And I think we will see boxing on television in this form, the same as it will be with football or maybe in a few other sports around mid-June, early July. And we need to get it on. You know, if we don't get this on, I think we're going to lose a lot of young fighters. 
because it's not like they can even train properly. All they can do is tick over. They can't get into gyms. They can't spar. And especially for a young man and starting out, and maybe somebody's got just took a mortgage out and so forth because they think they're going to earn big earnings. They're not getting them from boxing now. So what do they do? They try and get another job. There are not going to be a lot of jobs around because people are getting laid off left, right, and center. So it's a very tough time for the boxing industry. We're really working hard with the Boxing Board of Control to pull this together to enable us to get something going again so that we can try and get it moving. There's going to be no money in it. And that's like Gordon saying about the restaurants, reducing the capacity of the restaurant, that you know, downsizing how many people you can get into the restaurant. That's going to affect your bottom line. But you've got to get it moving. You've got to make, make it relevant. You've got to get it out there. You've got to show that you're open for business. And then hopefully it will, in time, come back in the way as we was leaving it. You know, Gordon's got a very successful business. We were doing brilliant. But it's all, at the moment, it's all up in the air like it is for a lot of people. Do you both fear, obviously, when you do come back, that there'll be a period of time of kind of running at a loss? Yeah, I mean, you, we always get heavily criticised. You know, running a business is very hard. And the margins now, uh, not just in the produce and the labour costs, uh, the running costs are pretty tiny. So, you know, there's no margin for error. But I go back to 2008, and I look at the, the devastation um, with the city crashing. And, you know, what we had to go through there, we had 35% of our business wiped off on the, on, on the sort of the private sector with the entertainment of, you know, the city boys. Um, and that was devastating. So the good news is the interest rates are down. Um, if we can get the landlords now to coincide and maybe extend these rent-free periods, business rates are on the shelf for 12 months, which is incredible. But I also think, and having three daughters and, and two sons, the mental health aspects of being confined to barracks and having this cabin fever, being that locked in for this length of time, we have to be very careful of the long-term effects in terms of knocking the confidence out of youngsters today. And so I'm optimistic, you know, we're going to open up, we're going to come back strong. And like I said, treat this as a new opening and something better than we were doing before we closed. And if it means trading, you know, breaking even uh, with, you know, tiny losses, there'll be substantial losses next year. There's no two ways about that. So we don't need, you know, a kick in because of the negativity being in the red due to the severe losses. It needs supporting. And trust me, there'll be a, an urge to get to a restaurant, to crack open a bottle of wine, to have some great food and to enjoy, you know, there's so much coming out of social eating across the table with friends and family mates and whether it's going down the pub for a beer or, you know, having a, yeah. a Eddie Wellington at the Savoy Grill, you know, there's something unique. And I get letters and emails on a daily basis from customers when, when can we get back? So there will be a search. We just have to tread very carefully, listen to the government, get the right kind of support from the landlords. HMRC have been tremendous. The government with the furlough scheme has been instrumental. And um, like the boxing fans, yeah, they are dying uh, to get back there and enjoy the atmosphere to support you know, what they want to pay their money for. And I think the one other thing is that what everyone's got to bear in mind, you know, from our sport, you know, obviously what, we will not be getting any revenue from live gate to start with because it's behind closed doors. So that's a, a serious loss of revenue for us. Plus the cost that you're going to in, incur ensuring that it's safe for boxers to box. The huge, huge cost in doing that. It's an, obviously an unforeseen cost in any business and anywhere where people are, are going to mingle or is any you know, close contact we have a responsibility to ensure that happens. And that's going to come at a cost. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Good point. You just mentioned um, the mental health aspect of all this. I know that you, you like your fitness. You're out and about doing bits on your bike and, and various others, triathlons and what have you. What's the next challenge there? How are you, how are you keeping yourself ticking over? 
So my, my, my dad uh, passed away at 53 uh, with a heart attack, a big smoker, and it was a sort of very Scottish diet, you know, fry-ups and uh, half a bottle of whiskey. So um, things have moved on. That's Frank's diet. That's what you're up to, aren't you, Frank? <laughs> no, I'm on, a, I'm on a, I'm a bottle. I'm a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> as, as my life got uh, busy, yeah, with the restaurants and the production, publishing side, the digital side, all of a sudden you get less time. And so I took to triathlons back in 2013 and did my first uh, Ironman in Hawaii wow. to get more time back, not just to go for a run, but to go for a cycle, to go for a swim. And then I convinced Tana to do an Ironman. And so we, we trained together and we have a foundation with the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, which now all the kids are part of. So, you know, they're blessed and they're lucky. And so they need to put back into that. And long after we're gone, I'm hoping that foundation is supported by them and they install that kind of confidence in their kids because your health is everything and that freedom and that release. And so for me, putting a wetsuit on tonight after dinner or before dinner and jumping the scene, going for a swim for three or four K, it is so relaxing. Jumping on a bike and, and cycling, so relaxing. So chefs have the world's worst eating habits because we graze. We don't sit down properly and eat because we graze. Because we, any chef that turn around and tell you that they eat before cooking dinner is a liar. And you need to keep that hunger to make sure that level of perfection is there. So you're, you're grazing. Um, so that healthy aspect, based on the constant reminder of having no dad and being a role model for my chefs and, and the kids, is so important. I mean, really important. So, um, yeah, those triathlons have really helped save, claw back time. And it seems weird, but starting off a swim in Hawaii with a 3.8K swim and 180K on the bike and then a 42K run, with 92% humidity, it sounds crazy, but it's bloody relaxing because it's done <laughs> to myself. And uh, it's the most amazing feeling. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm, I, I raise the bar. I need a target twice a year. Every six months, I need a target. Half Ironman San Diego, uh, full Ironman Barcelona. You know, I need that target every six months. And that keeps me on the straight and narrow. Otherwise, I'd be the size uh, of, a, of a freaking house. What's the next one then? <laughs> Barcelona, October. Okay. Looking You're coming, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there, mate. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and hold the water bottle for you. <laughs> uh, gents, I've got dinner to catch. No, no, no. Um, it's been an amazing chat, by the way. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate that, Gordon. You're, you're a gentleman as always, mate. And uh, I look forward to seeing you. And hopefully when we get the next big one on with Tyson, we want to see you there, mate, as our guest. There's nothing better than dinner and a fight anywhere in the world. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I know that better than anybody. <laughs> Thank Stay you. Stay safe, Gordon. All the best. Gordon Ramsay, as brilliant as ever. Hopefully you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed doing it. There'll be more podcasts coming your way in the not-too-distant future, so I must remind you, hit subscribe on iTunes or on Aircast, and therefore you'll never miss out on any of that stuff. And if you'd be so kind as to write us a review, it just helps with the visibility of this show, so therefore more people can come and listen to it. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>